0: The FAST Act is out. Insiders have been shown the bill. There's language that had its first hearing in the Senate this week. And the good news for cement and concrete supporters? It addresses resilient roads and bridges. As for spending, Politico's transportation team reports the bill would commit 28% more than what's allowed under the current authorization. How much is that? About $287 billion over five years. It's being called the most substantial surface bill in history. And that's good news, because more and more, storms are ravaging America's coastlines, gaining strength, causing record damage to our infrastructure network. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. The analysis of the FAST Act will take a few days. Our plan is to discuss it in more detail next week. In the meantime, we keep our focus on the push for resilient roads and bridges. It's good news that the Senate's version of reauthorization also recognizes this challenge and the need for action. Our guest is no stranger to the impacts of weather on the things we build. Pam Russell is a veteran journalist who covered Hurricane Katrina for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. Today, she writes for Engineering News Record. We've gone through her most recent reporting on these issues and decided to ask her about some of those stories.
1: I'm Senior Editor of Energy and Environment for Engineering News Record.
0: Engineering News Record has been around quite a while.
1: Yes, probably more than 100 years in one form or the other.
0: 100 years? I didn't know it was that long. I knew it was a long uh, yeah. time, but that's a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah that's why I'm proud to be uh, associated with them.
0: Let's talk about your experience and your association with this topic. In 2006, you were in Louisiana covering Katrina for the New Orleans Times Picayune. Could you have imagined then that so much of your reporting today would be about communities preparing for more and more of those kind of devastating weather events?
1: When Katrina happened, everybody looked at it as a one-off, like, wow, look at what can happen. And no one thought that this would continue to happen over and over again and one community after another. And it wasn't obviously until Hurricane Sandy that people realized that it's not just low-lying New Orleans that is at risk. It's, you know, anybody along the coast.
0: And you've seen more than just Katrina during the course of your journalism career. You've been all over the place reporting on these kinds of events. You have a pretty good bit of data and a personal experience to draw from when you're writing these stories every day.
1: You know, starting after Katrina, I actually was moved to the business desk and started covering energy, uh, which is our local utility, as well as the oil and gas sector. And I immediately noticed how after Katrina, the um, oil and gas sector, they started raising platforms and strengthening tie-downs on offshore platforms energy was raising their substations and the port was raising elevations there and it was all under the guise of resilience it was not under the guise of climate change and I just was fascinated by that that you know in Louisiana where the director of the port was an alligator farmer and he talked without hesitation about some of these issues like climate no well, resilience, not necessarily climate change. And Garrett Graves, who's now a representative, Republican representative from Louisiana, was very involved with Kathleen Blanco on some of those coastal issues. So here in Louisiana, we talk about coastal land loss. We don't talk about sea level rise. And that's able to cut through a lot of the politics. But then as I continued, I worked started working with engineering record probably 2008. You know, I continued to See what was going on on the ground as far as resilience, and that the companies and counties and communities were building resilience into their infrastructure, but the public didn't really know about it. And then over the last two years or so, I've been traveling and seen, I've seen the devastation after uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. We've been to the wildfires in California. I just got back from Denver. And, you know, in all those places, you can tell the level of resilience. Puerto Rico was not resilient. California has some resilience built into it. Denver, Boulder County was able to come back after the 2013 floods, and they had a really good plan to use some nature-based initiatives to rebuild back roads to make them more resilient. And, and, you know, the the incorporation of nature-based features um, has become more predominant. So, You know, I think that the conversation is obviously changing, um, and it's changing pretty quickly as these events happen more and more often.
0: It was so much in the background for so long, but Mother Nature is forcing it to the front of the line.
1: Right. You know, I don't think everybody grasps yet that engineers, you know, have built their careers, building things based on data from the past, and now you can't use that data because the past is not indicative of the future. And I think that everybody's kind of struggling with that and, you know, trying to incorporate that into design. And we're really at the infancy of that right now because you don't know what the sea level rise is going to be. You have a huge variance of like from one inch to eight inches or something, you know, maybe I think it's more than that. But, you know, so how do you plan? Do you build a road there if you think it might be washed out? What if, people need access to their communities, you can't not build that road. So how do you do it? And I think that everybody's struggling right now with what data do you use? What parameters do you use? Let's
0: talk about this World Bank report that was written about other countries. As it relates to how it plays out here in the United States, can you tell us a little bit about that story you wrote, what was in the report, and how you think it applies here in the States?
1: Sure. So I thought it was that was really interesting that you have a huge benefit if you invest, if it says that this is for middle and low income countries, that the cost of building resilience into the systems is 3% of the overall investment needs. But The net benefit would be $4.2 trillion, which is a benefit of $4 for each dollar invested in resilience. And I think that that might be the mid scenario. So, you know, if climate change, if you still feel more flooding, sea level rise, that benefit could be greater. So what I found fascinating about this was one of the recommendations was, you know, you have to have the systems right. You have to have good infrastructure to begin with. And, you know, you look at the, the United States, you look at the American Society of Civil Engineers report, and we get a D plus. So when we're talking about building resilience, some places we don't even have those basic infrastructures because we've just waited so long to, to rebuild and to, you know, build better and build back. So that's the one thing that really struck me is that, yes, we're talking about lower and middle income countries, but in the United States. We also have a lot of those same problems that our infrastructure is already failing and you put the stress of additional flooding or additional sea level rise, heat, drought, and that's really going to cause additional problems for our infrastructure. So the basics in the United States and most places aren't even (laughs) still need to be improved before we can really talk about resilience.
0: Now, that report said that low and middle income countries could save or realize a $4.2 trillion benefit over the life of the infrastructure if it was hardened. But if nothing was done, then the impact would be about a trillion dollars just over the next 10 years. So those two results couldn't be farther apart.
1: Right, right. And, you know, but again, you have the issue of competing demands, which we're also seeing in in the United States you know in the transportation bill talking about the need to just build a road versus you know building a resilient road well you know how do you how do you fine tune that how do you decide where that money is going to be spent and that's always the tension between resilience and basic infrastructure needs and the answer seems to be okay go ahead and build that infrastructure but when you build it make it resilient and that's what the you know, ASCE is recommending when you, you spend a little bit more. And I think that this World Bank report speaks to that. You need 3% when you make those investments to improve the road to make it more resilient or the bridge. And so it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both.
0: In your story about the NOAA report, which is online, it's called Tidal Flooding Closing in on Coastal Infrastructure, you quoted. One official from NOAA who said this is not a 2100 issue. In other words, it's not an 80-year down the road problem. It's in our face right now. It's been happening. We haven't been paying that much attention to it as a public at large. Uh, we're we're being forced to deal with it now. A lot of folks are talking about it. You touched on that a little bit earlier. Congress has has said some things about it. We've talked to members on this show about it. Uh, there has also been some talk in the military because a lot of their Facilities are right on the water. Where in your reporting have you seen the most action?
1: New York is on top of this quite a bit. Norfolk is really doing a lot. Uh, Miami Beach is doing a lot. Miami, Miami Beach, they just hired a new contractor to kind of look at what they can do. So along the East Coast is where you see the most action because they've had the most impact. Norfolk is an issue of subsidence. You know, New York, they're still trying to recover from Sandy and and prevent that from happening. Miami Beach, they've got frequent tidal floods there. So they're trying to raise buildings. So all along the East Coast, you see this happening. People are talking about it, and they're getting better at talking about it. It's also starting in Houston, just had a resilience competition. Their resiliency officer will be coming out with a plan later this year to make the city more resilient, some immediate actions that they're going to consider. New Orleans, obviously we're we're <laughs> the step the, the poster child. San Francisco also has been doing a lot. They had a San Francisco design competition to look at ways to make the the city more resilient. and Seattle is also. So so the big cities along the coast have been looking at this. and obviously, in the center of the country, you've got places like Iowa City, which is really far ahead on flooding issues because of the frequent floods that they've had. They do things like building seawalls along wastewater plants or raising roads to prevent flooding, and those efforts have worked, and they're really affordable. The National Institute of Building Sciences has come out with several reports saying that for every dollar spent, it can be anywhere from like, you know, $1.1 to up to $11 saved. Necessity is the mother of invention, and I think that that's really what's going on right now.
0: How do you see the rollout of the BRIC grant program through the DRRA, uh, you know, the Disaster uh, Recovery Reform Act passed last year? How do you see that impacting all of this?
1: I think that it's going to have a big impact. I think, unfortunately, because it's such a big program and since the need is so great, I think it's going to take a while to get rolling. It's going to make communities start thinking about resilience because the money is available. And I think that that has been the big problem in the past is that, yes, we know that we flood, but what are we going to do about it? We we, we can't even afford to keep our, you know, storage board going or whatever. Not that that's an issue in New Orleans, but hey, <laughs> I think that that's going to have a big impact. The more that Congress and the federal government can do you know, along these lines, I think it's much better because I after Katrina, you know, we spent what, $14 billion to build a system around the city to protect it. And once I started covering this, I'm like, no, Congress is never going to approve another $14 billion to build a system like this. And I think that's true. I think that you have to look at other options. And if Katrina struck today and we didn't have that system, you know, I don't know if that's the same system that we would build. I don't think that Congress would appropriate that money. And I think that we've come so far since then that we know of other ways to protect areas.
0: What's been the conversation so far, based on your reporting about materials, because some are stronger than others when it comes to storms.
1: The one thing that you know, I know there's been a lot on the fire side about materials and rebuilding to wild wildland urban interface. But when we went to uh, we went to Paradise, California, to, to check out the fires. The infrastructure that that handled that heat the best were the roads. So there was just very little damage on the roads. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, cool roofs or cool pavement, but there's debate on whether those are actually energy efficient or not energy efficient, but they, they may use more energy in the production of those materials or emit more carbon. In Boulder County, you know, they had these huge roads washed out by the river's flooding. So they went back in there. To build a road base that was more resilient, they actually dug down farther and then put boulders, like actual natural boulders, as the road base and then, you know, continued on. They think that that's going to help with erosion and future flooding issues. So the nature-based materials are getting a lot of traction right now.
0: You've been following the FAST Act because it has a lot to do with transportation, and one of the things we've heard, resiliency, has been included. What are you seeing uh, in the bill that addresses this issue, at least here in the beginning of the conversation?
1: I've listened to the hearings, and I've kind of looked over uh, some of the information about it, and it's shocking to see everybody on the same page about resilience. You know, the Republicans and the Democrats are both acknowledging the importance of making sure that when we build this infrastructure, when we build roads, when we build bridges, that they're building them to make sure that after the next disaster that they will still be standing.
0: And that's a little bit of a shift, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. I don't think you would have had that conversation five years ago. I don't think you would have had everybody on the same page five years ago.
0: Overall, then, you feel from the people you talk to on a daily basis that this issue is getting more attention, more people are thinking about it ahead of time. Uh, it's not an afterthought anymore.
1: Right. Yeah. The question is, how quickly can some of these things be implemented? Um, can can you rebuild some of these roads above sea level rise along the coast? Uh, is there going to be money for that? So I think that the conversation is changing. It probably needs to change much more quickly, and action needs to be taken much more quickly than it is right now.
0: Because every storm, every fire, every event that occurs, we're right back where we started. We're uh, spending more to recover than we would have spent to prepare.
1: Right. And you look at Puerto Rico as an example, the electric grid, you know, spending billions to just make it functional. And now they've got to spend billions more to make it more resilient. If that grid had been functional in the first place, and we're going back to the ASCE report, you know, if it had been functional and strong in the first place, you would have saved half that money right there. And who knows what our next Puerto Rico is going to be? Is it going to be, you know, Louisiana? Is it going to be coastal Maryland? You know, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of these areas that are most inundated are the least Populace. So the Louisiana coast, the islands along the Virginia and Maryland, they're farming communities, low income. And so the damage there is not as economically harmful. Obviously, it's harmful to the people who live there. Things are happening already that most people aren't aware of.
0: It's a tough way to learn that an ounce of prevention is really, truly worth a pound of cure.
1: Mm-hmm. And not only that, not only the prevention, but the the fact that we need to be more cautious and careful of what we build and make sure it's done right the first time.
0: Pam, thanks for taking some time to talk about your reporting on these issues. And I just have to say, if this keeps up, you might have to change your climate and move up here to the swamp with the rest of us.
1: (laughs) I hope hope not.
0: Next week, we'll break down the Senate's fast-act language with PCA's Rachel Derby and James O'Keefe. What's their take on the Senate's draft, and what are the chances it could get to the president before year's end? That's Wednesday, August 7th, on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.